Well, hi everybody. Welcome to the Stratosphere Lounge. Uh, uh, this is your host, Bill Whittle. Hope everybody's doing well, and uh, it's good to see you. Um, so, some uh, some interesting and important things to talk about uh, tonight. Uh, I think. I hope. Um, don't even really know where to start about this, but uh, I'll probably just start with um, with how this idea came to me. So um, I teased this a little bit before, uh, and um, I just before, at the beginning I just like to stress this has got nothing to do with the major Mace Mattingly stuff. That stuff is going on completely independently of this. Uh, this is this is something um, that I've been uh, toying around with uh, that's just completely dif different and separate. So. Um, so a number of times people have said, uh, hey, Bill, you know, you should check out um, Cameo. And for those of you unfamiliar with the site, like I was, uh, Cameo is a, a, a place where you can um, have a list of, you know, of, of, of celebrities and you can get them to do a recorded voice message for you or say hello or, you know, that kind of thing. And um, I took a look at it. Uh, sort of as just a, a revenue enhancer kind of thing. Uh, and what blew me away was just, you know, th with just the, the, the prices. Uh, I mean, it's like Malcolm McDowell, cost like $100. And I just thought, wow, you know, um, he can't be doing it for the $100. He's, I think a lot of the people on Cameo are, um, you know, people have kind of been around in the pop culture for a long time. And I think I think I personally think that most of this is them just having a chance to reconnect with fans and and to do all of those things. But strangely enough, um, what I came out of uh, the cameo experience with was an idea uh, not to get um, paid by cameo, but to actually pay cameo. And that's basically uh, what kind of got this this thing going for me. So in really broad terms, uh, this this country is so divided and, and the politics has gotten so acidic and, and venal and, and it's not just a question of me just constantly wading into this and just being just, you know, corroded by this, this daily, you know, parade of, of, of outrages and, you know, and, and, and indictments and, 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 and you know, transgendered swimmers and all the rest of it I get the feeling other people are a little sick of it too and and that actually got me thinking about how I got started here uh, not not with the um, the stuff at PJTV but started started um, I got started uh, doing silent America on eject 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 writing essays about um, about what I liked about America what I thought was going unsaid about silent uh, about America all all the things that that all the defenses of of America and the, this country and what this country is and what this Western lifestyle is that weren't being um, expressed that they were just going underneath the uh, uh, just buried underneath this kind of assault on on all of these things that people like you and me love so much. Um, thank you, Cody. Uh, and so I, um, I've been giving that a great deal of thought uh, lately. And when I look back on what those essays were about, I realized that 
that the situation today has deteriorated enormously since then, which paradoxically means I think they're much more in demand. I think they're much more important. And I've been really since the beginning of the political videos, you know, back at PJTV, like the one on Trayvon Martin and stuff, but concentrating more and more and more on, on this daily political analysis. And I don't know if that's really what we need right now, or at least another one of those. I'm not saying I'm going to give that up or anything. I've just been, for quite a while now, just been wondering what else is there to say about this? You know, I, I just don't really, um, I don't really know. We've done, I've done about 300 afterburner firewalls kind of thing. And, and when it comes down to that and the political step, I just, it just seems to me like I'd just be repeating what I was about to say. So I, I started really thinking at like a very, very fundamental level about what it is that I do and what it is that people uh, like. Um, and the conclusion I've come to is that, is that I should be doing something that I think is, is better for the country than just talking about what the hell's wrong with the country. Um, I don't think there's ever been a more important time for optimism and, uh, and, and lightheartedness and, and not false hope, just, 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 and certainly not escapism either, just something, you know, just something positive. Uh, and so I've had this rattling around in my head for quite a while. So I got on, uh, I got on Cameo and just took a look at it. As I said, mostly just as a, you know, just a income boost. And I looked at what, what it cost to talk to some of these people. And I had this really crazy big, um, insight, this idea. And I wanted to talk to you guys about it, uh, and see what you had to say. So, um, let me just uh, pull up a, a, a picture here. So here's what I'm here's what I'm uh, wanting to do. I got a bunch of problems I have to solve. One of them is um, is getting new members in. Another one is keeping the, the God knows the, the the hardcore loyal people that we have and so on. And I've been looking at the other people's business models and all the rest of it. And there's something about me that's that I'll get to in a few minutes. It's just some kind of mental defect that I've gotten had for a long time, but I'll get to that in a minute. But here, here's where my thinking went. I started looking at these, at these uh, names on Cameo, and then I started thinking about the names of the famous people that I know. And I'll just come out and say this, because this is not just a, 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 a test idea. This is just practically me time in the confession uh, uh, chamber. I have a hard time, uh, a very hard time going and doing membership drives and, and, and raising money because sitting here talking to you guys is very difficult for me to see where the value in that is. I know there's value there. I know that intellectually, but on some level, I just, I still can't believe it. I know I do good work and I know I, and I know I do important work because I hear from people. Um, but 
it's it's just hard to go out and sell shoes when you're the shoes and so what i thought about was i've been through through the work i've done i almost said lucky but really honestly just through a lot of hard work over a long period of time i've gotten to know a number of um of famous people and what i would like to do is i would like to start a, a new show uh once a week uh and i was going to call it in the moment but i think now i'm going to call it life lessons and this is what i want to do i want to interview celebrities mostly not exclusively but mostly and i want to talk to them about things that i never hear them talk about before i've come to realize that the success of of uh, of silent america and eject 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 and the best of the firewalls and afterburners i do and and stratosphere lounge which is i think this is throw damn near 375 episodes of this of this show so to me it all sounds like it comes down to storytelling and i think when storytelling is going at its best it's possible to get um moral truth and 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 get that across as stories we communicate with stories i talk about this all the time the bible's nothing but a series of stories um and uh and i i thought you know it would be interesting to talk to the people who make the stories about the stories and it's and it struck me that that would be fun because i can be funny when i'm when i'm having a good time with people i thought it'd be fun i thought it'd be deep i mean i know how to i know how this business works i'm in this business i know how to ask people questions um that that i think would get uh uh responses from them that that they don't normally get a chance to talk about but mostly i just thought this whole thing would be really uplifting i just thought it'd be good to do so i've sent out a couple of emails and i don't know just uh pump priming emails uh and i don't know what the response is i've only got one response back but I only sent them just a short time ago earlier uh today so what I wanted to do with this show I thought I'd call it instead of calling it in the moment I thought I'd call it um life lessons because I think there's a lot to learn about about how to make a better society but and how to make um better people out of ourselves and so I I'd like to stress that I don't have confirmation on any uh, I have confirmation on one of them as of as, as of as I sit here but the thought occurred to me that it would be good to talk to um John Void about uh vulnerability because that's what makes um Midnight Cowboy work and I don't know whether John will be able to do it or not but I asked him uh and and as I was thinking about this I realized no this is the thing to do it's it it, it 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 can't be just like a what's your favorite color kind of celebrity interview i don't think that does anyone any good um it has to be about something important and in the case of of john i thought about his his breakout roles and I, and i started asking myself what is it about those characters specifically in midnight cowboy and i realized it was about 
vulnerability and and I also realized that 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 for those of you not familiar with it, the th thumbnail thumbnail sketches of, of this is the only X-rated movie ever to win a Best Picture, and it was X-rated because it was about you know a gigolo, and it was it's not an X-rated film. I don't think it would even be an R-rated film by today's standards. But basically, the story is about a guy who's a uh, John Boyd is this you know six foot three inch tall blonde good looking guy who's a minor hustler. He's a gigolo in Texas, gets on the bus goes to the big city to make it big, meets this very sick uh, uh, street guy from Brooklyn uh, who's played by Dustin Hoffman, who's just the polar opposite of, of what uh, uh, John's character, whose name was Joe Buck, is. And there's this combination, this friendship and, and this mutual relationship in terms of helping each other between uh, Joe Buck and and uh, this guy Rico Rizzo, who everybody calls Ratso Rizzo, because he's just so small and sick and weak. And there's a lot of themes running through that movie. One of them is how the city um, can uh, strip away your I ideals and 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 the kind of the corrupting aspect of 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 big city life. But ultimately, ultimately, it's a friendship about these two people who are as unlikely as they could possibly be. And what they do for each other, and uh, at the end of the movie, I'm not going to give away any spoilers or anything. But at the end of the movie, Joe Buck has done an awful lot to help uh, Rizzo, who's like I said, constantly sick, and, and he's got that kind of loyalty and that kind of small town decency about him. And what and what Ratso Rizzo does for Joe Buck is he is he peels away Joe's image of himself and reveals the person who he really is, and it's a much better person. He basically throws away the cowboy hat and the, the whole thing, and he comes out of the movie, Joe Buck comes out of the movie as a whole person rather than as a, a cartoon person, which is the kind of person he was when he went into it. And the reason I think that this is interesting to, to me on a, on a larger scale is because Right now, despite the fact that I'm nothing but fangs and claws when I think about what's happening to this country, what I think the country needs more than anything is the realization that by, by, by analyzing and looking at movies, stories, I, keep, I don't want to say movies ever again, I want to say stories, that's what I'm talking about. What, I'm, what I got out of that, looking at it with new eyes, was that Joe Buck, is naive, healthy, handsome, strong, red state America. And Ratso Rizzo is short, ugly, limping, sick, blue state America. But the point isn't that red state America comes in and kicks blue state America's ass. The point is, is that these two characters got to develop a friendship and a love between each other and they both saved each other's lives. And I think talking about that is really, really, really interesting to me. Really interesting to me. What is it about this? It's clear to see what the appeal of Joe Buck is. I mean, John Voight is just, just like a Greek god, comes out of nowhere. He's this incredibly handsome, strong, big, happy, friendly, gregarious guy. And 
So we know what he brings to the table, but what is it that, that Rizzo brings to the table? What is it that he does? And if you, if you start thinking about this on a deeper level, you really kind of get to the heart of, of, what, of, of what makes America work when it's working is this, is this combination of urban and, and rural, this combination of these two characters making something that's not as naive as, as, as Joe Buck, not as cynical as Retz or Rizzo. And, um, and I just think that would be really interesting to talk about. Um, I sent out an email to, um, to Gary Sinise, and Gary has had a, a, any number of um, of uh, interviews and what he's done for veterans, not just in terms of movies, but with the Gary Sinise Foundation and the, the number of houses that they've built for people and the number of, of, of lives that they've saved. What Gary does is, is unbelievable, and, and he's talked about that before. But what I wanted to talk to him about was I wanted to talk to him about how did he get to Lieutenant Dan as an actor? What, what did he bring to that character that resonated with so many veterans when other movies hadn't, including John Voight? John Voight did, um, did Coming Home about a, a, a crippled Vietnam vet, and, and he, got, he did a tremendous performance, and the movie got lots of raves, but it didn't activate veterans the way that Lieutenant Dan did. And Tom Cruise did the same thing with Born on the Fourth of July. That story has been told a number of different ways, but what Gary did with with Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump activated veterans. It didn't just motivate them, it it it, it activated them. I've watched from the sidelines how how much genuine um, love and, um, and affection and gratitude that vets have towards Gary because what because what Gary did in that movie. But I'm I'm I want to know I want to talk to Gary about what what did Gary bring to Lieutenant Dan that made Lieutenant Dan work the way that it worked. That's what I want to do. Uh, this is the aspect of storytelling that I, that I want to get into. I want to get into what is that, uh, when, I, when I sent out these emails, and I just sent out four of them, four or five of them, what is that alchemy? What is, what is, that, what is that secret ingredient that, that makes a movie, a story, into something bigger than that in the real world? Um, and I... I, I've seen his reaction, both on camera in interviews he's done and in person. I've seen his reaction to the kind of feedback and the love he gets because of all of the things that he does. And I think other people have seen that too. I want to know where where did Lieutenant Dan come from, and what is it about Lieutenant Dan that was so moving? I mean, just right now in live in YouTube, uh, Christopher uh, Chambers says when. Uh, Lieutenant, I'm sorry, Kaladin Sockley says Lieutenant Dan's an excellent character, great performance, absolutely true. And then Chris Chambers says when Lieutenant Dan lashed to the mast and come what may, that was Gary's truth. All of this is true. But 
I want to hear it from the guy who put it together. We can we can all look and say things like over in in um, in this uh, Twitch stream. Uh, we can talk about the real anger that Lieutenant Dad had. Yeah, his bitterness, his bitterness, and his working through that, and and his and his smart acidness. You know, um, but you don't have no legs, Lieutenant Dan. I'm aware of that, Forrest. You know, the, the, all of this stuff. Yes, but I want to know, and I think probably you would like to know. I think it'd be interesting to you as an audience to understand the process that he used in order to get there because he did something beyond an excellent performance because Gary Sinise can't turn in a bad performance. He did something that Tom, that Tom Hanks hasn't done. Tom Hanks has won, you know, back-to-back -back Academy Awards, but, but, but it's just... He, he connected to people in a way that, that Forrest Gump didn't. I just find that really, really interesting. Um, I know this is just a name-dropping thing, but basically this is a name-dropping show. Uh, I, I, again, I'm very reluctant to talk about these things because I have not heard uh, confirmation one way or another. And if it turns out for any reason these guys cannot do this, then they cannot do it for excellent reasons. And, and so I, I don't want to promise anything I can't deliver. Um, but one of the emails I sent out was to um, was to uh, Adam Baldwin, who I got to know rather well. And so I want this show to be focused. I want it to be about life lessons. So I want to talk to John Voigt about innocence and vulnerability. And I want to talk to Gary Sinise about impact, about the power that movies have. When I sent out the email asking Adam if he'd be willing to sit down and talk for half an hour, 45 minutes, I said, I want... I want to talk to you about the tough guy. Um, I want to talk to you about the tough guy. And let me in interrupt myself here because Christopher Chambers put his finger on exactly what I want to talk about here in the, um, in the YouTube chat. He said, Gary's soul bled out through his character. And so did John's. And, and I want, and to some degree, I do this on the show as well. There's a lot of things I talk about, and one of them's coming up. And I, that is not only not easy for me to talk about, it just, just I, I'd really much rather have a root canal without anesthetic than, than, than go through some of these things. But it's important, and, and courage is courage. And, and, and when you see the kind of vulnerability that, that John or, or Gary put out, it may not seem like that takes guts, but it does, because these guys, are reaching into the deepest part of themselves and putting it out there. And you may not realize where it's coming from, but it's coming from somewhere. It's almost always coming from somewhere really painful. And, and, to, and to put it up there on the screen and to, and to not pull back, you know, to, to not pull your punches on it. This is what it feels like to be this angry or this heartbroken or this cynical or this, you know, this hurt, uh, John. This interests me, and and I think it's interesting on a on a on a very very high level. Interesting, and I think it's good for everybody in this country to hear these things now. Because when I was sending out these emails, I said I would like this show to have one overriding premise 
and the premise of what I want to do with this with this show is the series of shows. The only thing I am insisting on is that number one, we don't talk politics, and but the key 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 thing is people have to come out of this episode feeling better than they did when they went into it. That's all I'm asking. That's all I want. I just want people to come out feeling better than they did when they went in because everybody's feeling awful and, and they're feeling awful all the time. And and I'm I, it, I don't, not only am I tired of it and not only am I saturated, I just think it's a bad, bad thing for us to be doing is to continue with this division. I think it's time to start building some things. So, so, um, so when I uh, emailed um, Adam, I said, I want to talk to you about tough guy, about the tough guy. I said, it's not the villain, because you're supposed to hate the villain. And it's not the heavy, because same, same thing with the heavy. The heavy's supposed to be somebody you're afraid of. That's not the kind of character I'm talking about. I want to talk to Robert Davi about that guy. But what I want to talk to Adam Baldwin about is, how is it that uh, Animal Mother from um, Full Metal Jacket, and especially Jane Cobb from, um, from Firefly, how is it that you like these guys when there's nothing to like about them on paper? What, do you, what are you putting in there, Adam? What element are you adding to this recipe that turns this from a, a, a brutal murdering killer into a brutal murdering killer that you like, that, that you're sympathetic to? What is that? And, and, and all of these things can lead to questions like, so how do you, you know, the email for John was talking a bit about deliverance too. I mean, in deliverance, you've got these four guys uh, and you've got um, you've got Ned Beatty's character who's weak. You've got um, Ronnie Cox's char uh, character who's um, who's idealistic and naive, and then you've got Burt Reynolds who's brutal and cruel. And John Voight's character is the only one of them that is in balance. He's the only actual real man there because he's been he's been able to put these pieces that each one of these guys has together and so what makes a man john you know what what when you when you build that character what are you putting in there and what and, and what can we put into our lives as well how can we learn from this this is why i want to call it life lessons how how do we do this how does how does adam baldwin play particularly ruthlessly brutal guys who but let's not even say brutal just guys who just revel in violence um what redeems him now i did get one confirmation back of the ones i sent out just earlier today so we're going to be doing one of these at least we're, we're going to be doing more than one I heard back from um, from uh, Tom Dreesen, who said he'd just be delighted to do the show. Now, for those of you who don't know Tom Dreesen, Tom Dreesen is a, a stand-up comic, and Tom is there are uh, almost all comedy now is let's just call it 
uh, personality comedy. Um, Brian Regan, for example, or any or, or, or other comedians who I admire very much, Mitch Hedberg, all, all these guys, they're almost all personality comedians. And what I mean by that is Stephen Wright's a great example. Stephen Wright sits, sets up this bizarre character with this bizarre look and this bizarre voice, and then everything he says after that is funny because of the character he plays. But Tom, Tom is, is a joke teller. That's what Tom does, and he does it better than anybody I've ever seen in my life. I can't tell you how many events I've been to with Tom Dreesen. And Tom Dreesen is the best joke teller I have ever heard. So I want to talk to him about, I will talk to him. This one I can, I can assure you is going to happen. I want to talk to Tom Dreesen about timing. About timing. And I want to talk to him about how jokes work. Because I've got a theory about jokes, and my theory about jokes is that, the, that, is that a joke is always about a reversal. And that's why when you tell a joke, most of the jokes that you hear give you, you, you have to hear the situation three times. Man walks into a bar, and then something happens, and then something happens, and this, three, it's either uh, a rabbi, a priest, and a, and a, and a, um, uh, an imam, or, 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 or the guy does something three times, what, what, so, what that's happening, what that's doing is, if he does it one time, it means nothing. If you hear the story two times, then you think, okay, th this, is, this is a theme, but three times is a line. Three dots is a line. So that just about every joke you know. Well, first he does this, well, then he goes back and he says, and it raises the state, and the third, and he goes back and raises it again, and it's basically a line. And what makes people laugh is the fourth time, is a complete reversal of where that line was going. It's an absolute reversal. And that's what that's what I think is is interesting and that's what I want to hear Tom talk about because what Tom does better than anybody I've ever seen is that Tom will walk you on that line. This is where the story's going. The story is going here. And then he is so good at, at getting you to walk down this line that when he drops that reversal on you, it's, it's hilarious. If you wrote the joke down and gave it to 50 people, you'd get a laugh out of most of them, but you wouldn't get the kind of laugh that Tom gets because not, not only does Tom know how to, how to time that joke and deliver that line, he knows how to, he knows how to get those ducks in a row. And, and, and I, and I want to talk to that, him about that. And the other thing I want to talk to him about, not widely known about Tom Dreesen, well, first of all, Tom Dreesen opened for Frank Sinatra for a number of years. Tom Dreesen has been a guest host of The Tonight Show. That, those, are, those are legends. I mean, he toured with Frank Sinatra for a years uh, when he was starting his career. But what's not widely known about Tom Dreesen is Tom Dreesen um, was part of, um, of the first real bookable black and white comedy team called uh, Tom and Tim or Tim and Tom I don't remember which with Tim Reed who was on um, played Venus Flytrap on uh, WKRP in Cincinnati um, those two guys were a comedy act and they were the first 
uh, multiracial comedy act, comedy duo in the country. They got booked everywhere. And um, <laughs> David Booty says, Tom Drusa got fired for closing his act by saying, stick around for Frank. That's just perfect. I can't believe he, he would have gotten fired for that. But, you know, I, what, um, if, if he says so, then it's probably it. But that's, that's Tom in a nutshell. Um, but but Tom did this did this act with Tim Reed for years and years and years, and I want to talk with him about what has happened to race relations in this country because it seems to me that before, really I think before the election of Barack Obama, we pretty much had that licked. You know, we pretty nearly had it in the ground, almost almost certainly had it in the ground. Um, but but that line stick around for Frank. Last time I heard Tommy was about a month ago, and uh, and it was at a uh, an event, you know, because uh, Gary's uh, leaving California. This was an event from his like small small group of people, uh, just to surprise Gary and wish him a fond farewell. Uh, and. Uh, and everybody went around the room and they said, you know, somebody was talking to me before and said, it's just going to be so weird not having Gary here. And so when everybody went around the room and had a chance just to tell Gary how much they've done, he's done for them, he made me who I am. I mean, he and Instapundit, really, and, 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 and um, Stephen Denbest at uh, USS Clueless in terms of the, me sitting in this chair, they're the, they're the biggest influence that I had. Um, I told, I told Gary that him leaving Los Angeles meant for the rest of us, it was like the first time that we'd be sailing out of sight of land. That's what it felt like to me because he, he was, he's always just been this presence here, you know, but after all of this seriousness, you know, and all of this genuinely deeply felt emotion, just really deeply felt emotion. Tom stands up, and Tom was kind of hosting the thing. Tom stands up, and he says, okay, look, uh, I don't want to stand here and bore you with another 15 minutes of really great material. And I just thought that sounded again. And he did it again. But I want to know what I want to know what it looked like, because when Tom talks, Tom talks about um, growing up in Chicago and just how multiracial, multi-class, the whole thing was. Tom Tom has a lot of stories about guys in World War II, you know, and, and, and this guy was the Mick, and this guy was the Wop, and, you know, and this guy was the Heeb, and all the rest of it. And it was just a form of, of essentially a form of, you know, of love between these, these guys uh, and acceptance. And I think we really miss that, and I think it'd be good for all of us to hear about it again. But let me get back to where I was on Cameo, because this idea actually came after the Cameo idea. Um, I was looking at these at this list of people that you can hire at Cameo. Now, I have to admit that I spent almost all of this time thinking, I can get this guy for thirty bucks. Uh, you can get a personal greeting for thirty bucks in order to get something that's arable. It's considerably more um, expensive, but it's not crazy expensive. And so um, I looked at the people. I'm just going to read it to you because, because I'm about to make a sales pitch here. 
I look at the people I know who, who I think would be interesting to talk about, especially specifically about things. And um, and I'd like to sit with an addition of the people I mentioned. I'd like to talk to Andrew Clavin about morality, about right and wrong and why good and evil matter. I'd like to talk to Jeremy Boring about vision, about having a vision and building something. I want to talk to Mike Rowe about the common man. I want to talk to Kevin Sorbo about about playing the hero. And, and I want to talk to David Zucker about... about Leslie Nielsen and and this idea of of this untouchable figure walking through this hurricane of chaos and everything around him going to hell but he's completely immune uh, these are people who I know Tom Dreesen I mentioned Bert Rutan I want to talk to Bert Rutan about thinking outside the box um, I got to know Jason Patrick very late recently but you know I'd kind of be curious to know what it was like to be the Terminator put Clint Eastwood's name down there just to keep me, uh, you know, chance of that is slim, but there's a chance. I want to talk to Kelly Carlson about being a sex symbol. I want to talk to uh, Greg Gutfeld. I want to talk to John Ratzenberger about what it's like to, to, to be in the comedy factory where you're doing this every single week for years and years and years. Um, I think I mentioned how... Uh, I, I did four spec scripts for Cheers and how the thing that really surprised me the most, did I say Jason Patrick from Lost Boys? I'm sorry, I, I got his name wrong. Um, uh, uh, Terminator, ter Terminator 2, I don't know, I, maybe it's because it's two first names. But when, when they were doing Cheers, they would, they had a problem. The, the comedy writers had a problem. The problem was they would write their scripts and they'd start rehearsal, do a table read on Monday, and everybody loved it. Robert Patrick, sorry, not Jason Patrick, my fault, excuse me, sorry. Um, they would do a table read on Monday, and everybody laughed hilariously, and then on Tuesday they'd start to block the show out on the, on the stage, and everybody laughed. And then um, and then by Wednesday, they're, they've got their, their off book, and they're getting the lines down, and they've said the lines, you know, 25, 30, 40, 50 times, and... and and apparently, based on what the writers were telling me, by the time you got to Thursday, and the show records on Friday, by the time you get to Thursday, they they feel like the lines aren't funny anymore because they've said them a hundred times. And they start asking for changes in, 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 in the lines. And sometimes the writers would specifically hold back their better stuff knowing that they're going to have to change some of these lines out. But I just think it would be great to talk about what it's like to be in a show where you're making people laugh every week for 10 years or whatever. Um, and John, by the way, has done a lot of work on, on the common man. John's a, John's a guy who said that we couldn't build the, the um, Golden Gate Bridge today and so on. And, 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 I, and I loved his character when I wrote the four spec scripts for Cheers. Uh, the A story was always Frazier, and that's a name I'd forgotten. So let me put that down, too, for the sake of it. Kelsey Grammer. Um, and, and Cliff. And I, and I want to know what it's like, because when I was working on a sketch comedy show, that was the most fun I've ever had in my life. Just the writing room on a sketch comedy show was just absolutely the most fun I've ever had in my life. And when you've got a cast that is as solid as the cast on Cheers, there's no weak links on Cheers. Everybody on that show is fantastic. And I know what it's like to be in the writer's room. And having done an improv show, I know what it's like to, to 
to perform and watch it, but I want to know what it's like um, to um, to be surrounded by that kind of comedy talent and and to be legendary. You know. Let me see what else I got here. I I barely. I've been in. I don't think I've even spoken to him. Been in the room, same room with him several times with Jim Caviezel. But I'd like to talk to Jim Caviezel very much about what Hollywood has done to him and and his vindication. Um, and I put down names like Elon Musk, and uh, I want to talk about. Um, you know, I'd like to talk to uh, Ted Nugent about um, the serious lack of uh, balls in America and and. And then I made a list of people from Cameo. And so this just going to give you some names because this is this is when I really started to realize this could be something. Hang on one second. Uh, where did it go? I don't know why. They, they always constantly improve um, these things and make them worse and worse and worse. Okay. We'll try this one more time. Because I've got them. I wrote them down. Right, must be on this. Must be on the desktop. I thought that would have translated over. Come on, baby. Yeah, here we go. So here, here are the people that I found on Cameo that I would like to talk to. These are these are the names that I found on Cameo that that we would pay them a pretty reasonable amount of money. I can prime the pump with people I know. I hope. Uh, but these are people that I would like to, to pay, and I think we would just kind of vote on it. You know, we just, the, the, the membership or whatever, would just vote on who, who to talk to next. But here are some of the names I saw. Robert Hayes from Airplane. I know Robert Hayes. Um, Mark Metcalf. Now, that guy's a villain. He's a heavy. Uh, I definitely want to talk to um, um, Robert Davi, and I know him rather well. I suspect I could hopefully I could certainly approach him about it anyway I saw Dave Foley there from Kids in the Hall and I'd like to talk to him about about improv and and that and that process and how much fun they seem to be having um Chris Parnell from Saturday Night Live is 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 there and the thing I find interesting about Chris Parnell is he's he's the he's just a workhorse he's not a comedy star he's not famous for his characters but he carried the entire show. Uh, Victoria Jackson, I've met a few times. I know Victoria Jackson a little bit. Um, and I mentioned Ted Nugent. Air Supply is there. Air Supply. Now, I thought to myself, what the hell am I going to do with Air Supply? But this is, this is how, how I think how, how this show could really be opened up. There was a period there where Air Supply owned the airwaves. They just for two or three years, they just owned every song that was on the radio. And I, and I want to know what it was. What was that? How did I, what, what did you, what did you get in touch with guys that, that made that happen? Um, okay, so, um, and, and some of these are just weird. But but many of them, like I have a personal connection to, for example, the next one. Casey from Casey and the Sunshine Band is available on Cameo. 
Uh, now, a lot of people didn't like disco music, and I didn't particularly like disco music either, but I still have three Casey and the Sunshine Band songs on my um, on my uh, iPhone because it was fun music, and, and when I was in high school, that was what people danced to. And I just think it'd be interesting to talk about. <laughs> Joe Casale from Devo is available. And and on on um, cameo he's he's wearing the red flower pot thing. When when I was in high school, that 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 '80s music happened just as I was leaving high school and getting into college. I saw the Devo for the first time when I was a freshman at the University of Florida. But we're coming off of a time when the number one rock and roll song in the country was "You Light Up My Life." That's the number one rock song, and. And it was just so bland and boring. And then I, and then comes Devo with Whip It. And I just, I couldn't believe my eyes. And, and I actually went out to, to a bunch of nightclubs during that. I was, a, I, was a new, I was a new wave lounge kind of guy. I love new wave music. I love going out to clubs during new wave. And I want to talk to Devo. I want to I talk to Devo. I want to talk to, I want to talk to Devo. Um, I know Gene Simmons. I'd like to talk to Gene Simmons. I'd like to talk about that whole experience of shock, you know, shock. What's, what is, sh what about shock? What's the, what's the storytelling appeal of shock? Because that's what Kiss was. Um, Wayne Newton is available. I'll tell you who I'd like to do. Uh, I'd like to talk to Mickey Dolenz from The Monkees. And now we're getting into a whole string of things that are that that border on just nostalgia, but it's not just nostalgia. I think it's like I say, life lessons. I mean, I don't want to talk to these guys specific. I don't want to ask them the same questions they've always gotten in their lives before. You know, I want to talk about I want to talk about things that are really important. And I'll I'll tell you the name that sold me on this idea. I'll save it for last. Just going down the list here. <laughs> Sit down. Uh, you, you know who I'd like to talk to? Who I'd like to interview? I'd like to. I'd like to talk to Boy George. I'd like to sit down and talk to Boy George and say, uh, uh, "Well, Mr. George, or Boy, if I can call you that, um, I'm a heterosexual American conservative." And I suspect that you're none of those things. And here we are talking about life and art and music and stuff. And ain't that grand? I mean, isn't that just kind of where we need to be right now? I, I, I remember when I, and, and, I, I, and I would tell him this when I first saw him. I, I just, it was so disturbing that I kind of wanted to strangle him, you know? <laughs> I, I just, ugh, wh why? Why did I feel that way, and why did you provoke that? Um, I know it got you famous, but it must. But and I also know it got you a lot of hate as well. And how'd you deal with that? And was it worth it? it it's just interesting to me. There's the name I'm saving for last. Uh, I can talk to uh, Brett Favre. Brett Favre. You know what I would talk to Brett Favre about? I'd talk to Brett Favre about pressure. I would talk to him about pressure. What's it like to be there when the entire world is watching and it's all on you, basically? Um, 
Lee Majors is available. That would be a, a more of a nostalgia kind of thing. Dr. Drew's available. I listened to him all the time back in the day. And and th this is maybe my second favorite one. Uh, Peter Weller is available. So I could sit down and talk about Buckaroo Banzai with Buckaroo Banzai. How freaking cool would that be? I just think that'd be really fun. And not just like, gee, gee, Peter, I really liked the movie. I thought the movie was really, really cool. Uh, this is exactly what I don't want to do. I don't want this to be what's your favorite color with celebrities. I want to talk to Peter Weller about, about what, how big of a part of Buckaroo Banzai was the fashion. Because this was, at the absolute height of 80s fashion and everybody was dressed in a way that made you think this and the thing about about buckaroo bonsai is is he's he goes from brain surgery helicopters out to the desert drives his 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 um his ford through a mountain into the eighth dimension comes out the other side and then that night he goes out and he's he's just shredding a guitar with his scientist pals and I just said, I don't know what I want to do with my life, but I want to be, you know, I, I, I want to be Buckaroo Banzai. I really want to be that guy. And Weller's a brilliant guy, too. Um, and he'd have, I think he'd have a lot to say about, about, not about, hey, Peter, tell us about what was your favorite moment on Buckaroo Banzai. I'm not interested in that at all, although I'm sure we'll get a lot of that. I want to ask Peter Weller, what made that character Superman, in a way, just just this kind of what made him the ideal man because everything's in there. He's brave, he's smart, and he's cool. You never get that. You usually don't get two out of three. In fact, I can't think of anybody who gets two out of three. But Buckaroo had all three of those things. He's brave, he's smart, and he's cool. And how do you build that character? And how do they play off of each other? Thought that'd be interesting. Um. I can, I can for us, I don't know what the sum of money is, but I can talk uh, um, VM, I'm sorry if I can't get it, VM, I'm just going to go with VMV LKC, Villenblick, said the 80s was a happier time. It was a happier time, but I don't want it to be just nostalgia. I'm, I'm going to load on the nostalgia, don't get me wrong, but I don't want it to be just about nostalgia. I want people to feel better about the now. I don't want them to feel worse about the now. I want to feel better about the now. So what was it about the 80s that was, that was, fun because it was fun Devo is fun um, uh, let's see uh, you know who else I could talk to Th some of the names blew my mind uh, Britt Eklund Britt Eklund somebody tell me which she was one of the first Bond girls she was in one of the first two or three movies um and she's in her 90s now. But you know what I want to talk to Britt Eklund about? I want to talk to Britt Eklund about men and women. I want to talk to her about masculinity. I want to talk to her about, about this whole idea of, you know, you, there are people out there who would, you know, who would say you've just been so exploited in your... I don't think she feels exploited. If she does, I'm interested in hearing about that. But I think talking to Britt Eklund about what has happened to modern sexuality and, and the relationship between men and women today compared to what they were with, with Sean Connery and Britt Eklund, 
I thought that I think that that would man with a golden gun. I think so. It would be Roger Moore. I think that talking to a Bond girl about about modern day, not just modern day feminism, just just all of this stuff with women today. I think she'd be a great person to talk to about that. I'm going to save that name too. Uh, Bo Derek. Talk to Bo Derek. What's it like to be the most beautiful woman in the world? At least being playing the title role in a movie about the most beautiful woman in the world. What's it like? You're much smarter than your character is on screen. Did you feel that, you know, how'd you feel about that? Uh, Lady Gaga's not there. Big names, real names, current big stars. I didn't see a single one. Um, I wanted, but I think I think she'd have something to, to talk about. She's uh, conservative as well, by the way. Um, uh, Henry Thomas from ET. Henry Thomas, if you see, it's available online. I've talked about it on the show before. His audition tape for ET where he's off script and they're basically just improvising with him and he's just crying his eyes out. It's the best acting I've ever seen. It's just, it's just, it's just some of the best acting I've ever seen. And it, and that clip that's on YouTube ends up with off camera, Steven Spielberg's voice saying, kid, you got the job. Um, I'm curious to know how, to me, child actor is an oxymoron. It's like, I, I can't imagine how you could be both of those things. But you were, and you were terrific. Um, Cheryl Ladd is there. That's another thing too, you know, iconic kind of kind of person. Uh, Barry Bostwick is there, and Barry Bostwick uh, played Brad in Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I'd like to talk to him about camp. See, this is the point of this this series. I think there's lessons to be learned about all of it, but mostly it's about I want to look at each individual section of the storytelling process every little compartment of it because they're they're all different playing the fool is different than playing camp and playing camp is different than playing um, the wiseacre and and whether you liked it or not and I certainly had a I, I went to we did the Rocky Horror Picture Show midnight every year every, you know, for months for a year and I want to know what what it's like to to play Brad and damn it Janet and just think it's interesting. Um, here's a name that'll ring with some of you. Neil McDonough is there. What's it like to be in Band of Brothers? What's it like to do that? I want to talk to Neil McDonough about about the reaction that I had and all of you had when that Cadillac ad came out. About um, yeah, we with we went to the moon we got bored we left a car up there left the keys in it we know who's coming back for it just that neil Mc, uh, that that um neil mcdonough has played so many all-american guys a lot of soldiers and stuff and, and i think he's interesting to talk about tommy chong i can't imagine somebody on the world that i have less in common with, with than tommy chong but that's why i think that would be a great interview because tommy chong uh, is like the world's leading pothead, and uh, and I'm not. But just the fact that we could sit and talk about it would be interesting. And I can say, 
to Tommy Chong that when I was in elementary school and junior high, everybody, everybody was doing you. Everybody. Everybody. Dave's not here, man. What do you say to that, you know? Um, uh, Barry Williams is there. Uh, Barry Williams from um, Brady Bunch. Here's what's interesting to me about, about talking about Barry Williams. Two things, really. One of them is, is that the Brady Bunch was perhaps, and I, and I would just say this as a person who watched it for five years, but on, on a lot of levels, it, it is the most banal show that's ever been on TV. It is so white bread and mayonnaise, there's nothing there that you can look at and go, wow, but, but, but. It, it, it owned the culture. It, we, we, what I want to talk to Barry about would be, what is it like, what's it like to walk through this to walk through life and have an introduction to everybody. Everybody you meet knows you. You don't have to introduce yourself to anybody. I can tell them truthfully, I could say, you know, Barry, I saw you in a, in a, um, it was in a uh, flight school at Santa Monica Airport. It was an FBO. I was checking out a, a diamond, uh, a diamond star, and I saw you there at the counter I don't know what you were doing there, but it was you. And they'll undoubtedly say, yes, it was me. I knew who you were instantly. Everybody knows who you are instantly. What's that like? What's that like? I mean, that's got to be kind of amazing, I would think. Just kind of amazing. I don't need to talk to him about his relationship with, you know, with um, Florence Henderson because everybody else has done that. I don't want to do that kind of thing. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to rearrange this list a little bit just to kind of save the punch. And I'm, I'm, and I'm getting there. I'm going to skip a couple names. Um, Colin Mockery from Whose Line Is It Anyway is there. That's fast. I've been a part of an a improv group. And, um, and the one thing that they taught me in improv was wherever the ball is going, you always keep the ball rolling in that direction. You never stop the ball. You never just stop the ball. You're walking into these situations. It's all happening on the fly, and and you, you kind of have to formation fly. You just jump in there. You got to be going the same direction. You can add new twists to it, but you can't reverse it exactly. I'd like to talk to him on some kind. I'd like to talk to Colin Mockery. I'd like to interview Colin Mockery from the perspective of a guy who is at least in a a comedy improv company and knows how it works, because I've never seen that before. Um, Bruce Boxleitner, who I know rather well, needless to say, international film and television star Nick Searcy. I'd like to talk to Nick Searcy about, about the kind of confidence it takes to have um, self-deprecating humor to make fun of yourself. I, 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 I love Nick Searcy, and, and he pays me uh, to say that. Um, so with just a couple more names left here, I'll skip a few. Um, Vic Mignona is there, who did Star Trek Continues. I want to talk to him about dedication or or perseverance or what's I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is 
but of all the Star Trek fan fiction out there, and I might have done the first one ever, or one of the first ones back in 79 or something, um, or earlier, 75. Uh, but he got Star Trek so right that there have been many times I've watched Star Trek Continues and just just felt this shot of adrenaline like, that's William Shatner. And by the way, when you look at Vic Mignona's picture on Cameo, I was not prepared for that. Vic is a strange cat. Um, uh, speaking of Axanar, um, uh, I know Gary Graham. You know, you're a Vulcan ambassador, man. What is that? What does that bring? So I just want to wrap this whole this whole pitch up here. Um, so Vic Bignone, you can talk with. Um, this wouldn't be top of my list, but um, Mike Carter is available. Who the hell is Mike Carter? Mike Carter is the guy who played the alien with the long things that was standing next to Jabba the Hutt with the big teeth. That guy. Is he recognized as he walks down the street? I suspect he's not. But if you're a Star Wars fan, he was there. You know, saw the whole thing. These are, these are, so I've, so I've saved just a couple. Um, in fact, I think I've just saved two. Adolf Lundgren, it'd be fun to talk to because he's one of the most brilliant guys ever. He he plays this this mindless robot death machine. He's got an IQ of 190. He's just one of the most smart guys who ever lived. Here are the two names that interested me the most. And and no one's more surprised about this than I am. Um, I want to talk to Sally Struthers. Sally Struthers. Yes, I want to talk to Sally Struthers. Uh, I'm sure that Sally Struthers and I disagree about everything politically, but I want to talk about All in the Family. I want to talk about what that show did, how it how it changed the course of society. I want to talk about Archie Bunker. I want to talk about what what Gene Stapleton brought to Edith that made her so lovable, and I want to talk about why people ended up loving Archie more than they ended up loving Mike Stivick. That was not the intention, as I understand it. And and I like the idea of talking with people who I don't agree with politically. I, this is the entire purpose of what I'm trying to get across, is what I'd like to leave all of them with when it's over is, yeah, he seems like a reasonable guy. You know, we talked about football, or we talked about this, or we talked about that, and, you know, it seems interesting. So I'll, I'll wrap this little sales pitch up by telling you about the one name I'd like to talk to the most, and this is only a personal thing, but this one actually kind of blew my mind. It really blew my mind. Um, if you go to Cameo, you can uh, get a birthday greeting from, or for a higher price, you can do a commercial project like, like an interview with Steve Spurrier. Uh, when I saw Steve Spurrier there, I said, oh, this is really good. This, this could be something really big. I would talk to Spurrier. I'm sorry, Coach Spurrier. I would talk to him about confidence. I know this is on some level unique to the University of Florida, but it's also much bigger than that. 
And of all the names I saw on that list, that's the one, that was the one that really just made me like, really? Because I've been waiting, I don't know, nearly 30 years to tell Steve Spurrier how much he meant to me and all of my friends. But that's not in, in itself interesting. Here's, some th here's what I would talk to Steve Spurrier about. University of Florida had been playing football for something like 110 years and had not won our conference championship, let alone the national championship, had not ever won a, a Southeastern Conference championship in 110 years. And this is, Florida's one of the biggest, if not the biggest football recruiting state in the country. We just couldn't do it. And I want to tell Steve Spurrier, I said, Coach, first time I went to the University of Florida, my friend was a year older than me. I came up for Gator Growl in seventy uh, eight, and on the field, coach. The night of Gator Growl, and the following day at the homecoming game, somebody had taken gasoline and had written letters in gasoline, which kills the grass, and there's nothing you can do about it. And what those words said were, dump Dickey, because our previous head coach was Doug Dickey, and I think he'd gone six and five or something like that, and been there for a while. And it said, dump Dickey on the field. What do you have to say about that? That's, that's you know, that's not a, that's not a hate letter. That's, what, what kind of what, how, what, what kind of humiliation is that? So that's just the lead-in. So then, so 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 they did dump Dickey, and then they got Charlie Pell, and Charlie Pell came to the University of Florida from Clemson, which I think uh, Spurrier was coach of. I'll do a little research before I get there. And I want to I want to tell Steve Spurrier this story of what of what he what his time at University of Florida looked like from the other side. So in comes Charlie Pell and. Uh, and we think this guy's going to be the, the answer. And they print up these bumper stickers that say, give him hell, Pell. And in his first season, he goes, oh, 10 and one. And then they cut up the bumper stickers at the end of the year. And everybody was walking around with bumpers, or driving around with bumper stickers. They just cut them up and rearranged them. And then they said, hell, give him Pell. What's that like? Coach, you know, what's that like when, when you get on the, on the, on the downside of that, fandom curve but i want to tell him what it was like to to do this and, I, and and there's a story i want to tell him and then i'll tell you what i want to ask him i'll tell you what i want to ask him first i've never seen anybody else do this in football i'm not saying it's not done i've just never seen it before this is what I, this to me is the essence of steve spurrier when you take the initial coin toss in a football game you always elect if you win the coin toss, you always elect to kick because you want to receive at the beginning of the second half. For those of you not familiar with football rules, there's a coin toss to determine who kicks off the first first kick of the game, and then after halftime, the other team uh, gets to receive the ball. And it's always strategically smart when you when you have the choice offered to you to elect to kick so that you can receive the ball 
halftime when when you have a much clearer idea of what the game is. But alone among anybody I've ever seen, every time Steven Spurrier won a coin toss for the Gators, he elected to receive every time. That meant he was giving up this this advantage every time. And we were amazed. And and what we found out was that given the offense that he designed, we would we want Steven Spurrier wanted the ball from the first second that ball was in play. He wanted he wanted the offense on the field from that first second. And for a couple years, we scored on the first possession. I think something like nine out of eleven games of the year scored on the first possession. We are thirty seconds into the game. Gators seven, opponents zero. Steven Spurrier named the swamp. Steve Spurrier did a bunch of these things, but the thing I really want to tell Steve Spurrier is I want to tell him this story, and I'll conf- I got to get the details with a friend of mine, a bunch of my Gator friends. When I tell them I get a chance to talk to Steve Spurrier, they're going to lose their minds. But just I, just imagine his reaction to this story. We had gotten to the national championship in '95, and we played Ohio State. And on Sports Illustrated magazine, I think it was Sports Illustrated on the cover, they had Spurrier, it was a cartoon, Spurrier standing in front of, of a team that consisted of drag racers, and then the coach of Ohio State standing in front of a team that consisted of steamrollers. So it was offense versus defense, and the defense kicked their ass, and we lost that game. So the next year was Danny Werfel's final year. He was, he was a Heisman Trophy winning, Heisman Trophy winning quarterback. And when Steve Spurrier came to Florida, we knew he was coming home. He was the only Heisman Trophy winner that we'd had, I believe. And he's now a football coach. And now he's coming back to the team and to the location. This is his home. This is where he went to school. It's like the return of, 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 of Superman or something. So let me just give you this for this 96 season. So we win every single game in 1996. It's an 11-game season. We're playing the last game of the year. It's a non-conference game against Florida State, who we hate. And the reason we hate Florida State is because we either went to Florida or Florida State. Nobody really knew which one they were going to get to, but that's why you hate the – that's why there's this in-state rivalry because half of your friends went to Florida State, and so they all must die. Um, And you had to go down the Florida Turnpike and see the Florida State license plates. It said two-time national championships, and we've been playing for 150 years, you know, so on. So this is the year, this is the time, it's now or never, last game of the season, Florida State, we lose that game, I think, by a field goal. And these, these places will mean something to Steve Spurrier. And, and, and I just want him to know what it felt like. I just want to say, so coach, there we were, we were at Ashley's, the room was packed, we'd lost to Florida State, our arch rivals, we'd missed our chance at the national championship, this was as close as we were ever likely to get, and it was over, and everybody in the room was crying. Everybody. And in the midst of all of this, after everybody was literally just sitting there, just dumbstruck, because if you lose a game in a college town, the whole town for that week is just shot. You go into Best Buy at Gainesville after you lose to Florida State and ask for a widescreen TV, and they'll say, how much is it? And they'll say, just take it, just, just, just take it. So while we're sitting there and starting to file out of this out of this room, this guy stood up. Is wait wait wait? Ever just hang on one second. Ever just hang on one second. 
Now just stay with me here. Okay. If this is off a of memory, but if Clemson beats those guys and knocks them out, and then if this thing happens and knocks them out, and then if the University of Texas wins their division against these guys and knocks them out, and by the time he's in, he's in this thing, we're saying, just shut up, Mike, shut up. We don't want to hear it. Just just stop trying to put a gloss on this. It's over. It's done. Just 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 own the misery, man. No, 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 no. Wait, wait. If this happens and this happens and then this happens, then Florida State would be ranked number one, but we'd be ranked number two, and we'd get them again in the Sugar Bowl. Yeah, you know, to hell with you. You know. Okay, whatever. And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And then we got to the Sugar Bowl game against Florida State, the big rematch. We'd always gotten beaten by them when it counted. Kickoff, first possessions, Florida State scores a touchdown. And I'm saying, and I'm usually the first guy to panic in a situation. I'm saying, no, 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 no. We got here. We're going to win this game. And we did. And I want to tell, I want to tell Steve Spurrier what it's like to go down the street, to go down University Avenue and 13th Street and see every single car in the entire county bumper to bumper and the seat walks sidewalks packed with people and complete strangers just hugging each other and crying and just this overwhelming sense of joy and then we had this uh kind of a celebration for the team at, at florida field a couple days later 60 70 000 people came out for that to, to welcome the gators you remember that coach you remember that that thing remember the videos that there were there, there was like a a salute to danny werfel and there was kind of like a highlights of the of the of that that championship year remember that video I, hope, I imagine he does i said well i did that video that was me i cut that video all by myself i just think this is interesting so that's what i want to do now um it's occurred to me that uh that uh, everybody else who's in this business has found a way to monetize their situation uh, considerably better than i have so this is what I plan to do. I will take those. Uh, the lags are back. I'm tempted to restart. I really am. I really am. You know what? I'm going to. Let me ask a question here. Um, can, can you hear me? I mean, are we, are you able to follow the conversation? Because this is important. I've heard it from Twitch and I've heard it from uh, YouTube. Just uh, let me know there, guys. I'm waiting for a little feedback here. Now everybody's talking about lags. I'm very tempted to re restart this stream and um, and just splice them together. How about you guys, Twitch? Are you hearing me? Damn it. Okay. All right. Well, it looks like, looks like, um, looks like, all right, on and off. I'm going to stay with it. Okay. So here's, here's what I'm going to do with these interview shows. I'm going to sit down for, I'm hoping for 45 minutes for an hour. 
before I did this, I was an editor for Sunday Morning Shootout. I know how to take an interview and cut it down to real gold. I know how to I know how to get the air out of those things and just really make it tight. I'm very good at that and I like doing it. So what I what I plan to do is on every one of these interviews I'm getting people saying restart. I don't know. Restart. I don't know how many people will come back, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to restart because this is important. This is really important. I probably should have led with this. Okay, so um, let me make a, a visual note for people. Um, oh, it's okay. It's over. Pretty good. Video stuttering. I'm 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 lost here. I don't know what to do. I'm going to lose people if I restart it. But at the same time, I don't want this to be chopped up fixed all right I'm gonna stay with it just that's that so here's here's what I plan to do for every interview that we do I'm going to make three little clips really kind of the here's here's a here's a 60 second moment that's really good here's a minute and a half that's really good here's a 45 second sound bite that's good I'm going to do that for th three of them for each one of these interviews and those are going up on YouTube for free and they are going to be essentially teasers they're window dressing because it's I think we're gonna get some really great stuff I'm gonna make the edited version available on on BillWhittle.com for members only to finally give our members something of, of value that they wouldn't get if they weren't members so in order to see the finished interview, you'd have to be a member at BillWhittle.com, much the same way you have to be a member at Daily Wire and all the rest of these things. That's for the $9.95 a month membership. For the $19.95 a month membership, I'm going to make access to the raw footage. Just from the moment we get into the room and sit down to the moment we end, that's going to go out to the, um, the next tier of people. And for the people who are producing members at our top tier, I'm going to take questions from them uh, and I will ask at least one or two of them of whoever we decide we're going to do next and we'll announce who we're going to do next. And by the way, on that list of names, I didn't include the one name that that actually got me started about this. I'll just say it real quick. Um, so everybody gets to see some highlights. Members get to see the edited video, which is the best version of the video, honestly. The 1995 a month people get to see raw footage from the moment we sit in to the moment we turn off the lights. And then the, uh, the, the top membership level get to ask questions that I will ask them, and I'll mention their name. Um, here's the name that I saw on uh, Cameo. Steve Spurrier was the name that, that locked me up at the end, but here's the name that started me. Um, and that name is Bill Moomy. Uh, for $350, I can talk to Bill Moomy for an hour, and I can run it for three months. 
And then after three months, for an additional 160 or something, I can run it for another three months, and I can keep doing that. But Bill Moomy is the name. When I, when I saw Bill Moomy there, I just said, okay, this is, this is what I want to do because I really need to talk to him. My, people my age and, and people close to my age don't understand the importance that Will Robinson had. And I thought about why is this character so important to me? And I realized it's the only time I can remember when you could be smart and brave at the same time. You weren't just a nerd and you weren't just a, a, a doofus. Time and time again, when everybody's downstairs strapped in and Dr. Smith is, is, is singing the blues, Will wants to go upstairs and be part of the flight crew. That's, that's me. That's, that's just me. And, and it, gave, it gave the kids who had their hands up first in the class somebody to look up to, somebody to be. And when he goes out there and his dad is c captured as he flies his jetpack, you know, John Robinson's captured by this enormous giant and Will, Will, who's seven or eight in this thing, goes out there after this thing, this enormous huge cyclops giant, and he shoots it with a laser pistol and rescues his own father. I think, I think, most, I think most kids have fears of giants when they're growing up. I did, I had nightmares about giants. And then I saw him shoot this giant and I thought, well, nothing to it. Just, I'll just make sure you have a laser pistol with you. I want to talk to, and here's something else I want to talk to Bill Moomy about. I, when I was a kid, I talked to my dad. We were living in Bermuda in a hotel, and I said, Dad, why don't we just invite Bill, Bill Moomy to come and stay at the hotel for free for a couple of days? We can just hang out, you know, because I wanted to hang out with Will Robinson real bad. The idea that Bill Moomy and Will Robinson weren't the same people was beyond my comprehension at the time. I'm curious to know whether he would have accepted that. But more importantly, I think, I'd like to talk to him about, I used to think you were the luckiest guy in the world because you, you, you worked on, on Lost in Space, but I realize now you're the only little boy in America who didn't get to enjoy Lost in Space. You're the only one who didn't get to enjoy Lost in Space the way we did. Because when I looked at that, TV show, and I saw that round set of the Jupiter 2, that was a crashed spaceship to me. But to you, it was a curved flat on the other side of those walls. There were wooden supports, and there are lights, and there are bags handing, and you can clearly see the dividing line between the painted background set and the sand in the foreground, and you're the only person, the only boy that age in the country who didn't get to have the lost in space experience that occurred to me that was your job you saw everything you never got to hear the robot speak all you got to hear was bob may inside the thing going click click, click. yes and he's saying his lines dick tufeld was 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 put in much later you never got to you never got to hear the robot talk to you like a friend the way all of us did it occurred to me that that's kind of sad in a way because I don't think you can possibly appreciate how important that was to us because it, it wasn't an experience you, you could have had. I, I look, that robot was my friend. And the, 
there's this plastic grill around the base of his you know, this bubble head. He's got this neck that pops up and down. He's got this grill. And all of the actor's sight lines are towards the grill because that's where Bob May's eyes are. Now, presumably, these white things up on the top of the bubble are his eyes, but I never saw anybody look at, at, at the robot in the eyes. And so when somebody said this is the robot's eyes, I said, no, it can't be right. You know, it's a hat he's wearing or something. Robot's down here someplace. I don't know. I think it's I think it's just great nostalgia, but I think I'd like to talk to Bill Mooney about what that role model meant about a kid taking a pistol and going out there and rescuing his father. And we don't see much of that today. And what do you think about that? What do you think about that? They made a movie that, you know, was just, uh, and they made another TV series, which was also, uh, Will Robinson is like James T. Kirk. He's part of the culture. He's a, he's a mythological creature. And Bill Mooney is, is Will Robinson. And there is no other Will Robinson. There's no other James T. Kirk and there never will be. You're a mythological icon and you changed my life, and and millions and millions of lives too. And I had a chance to tell you that in a Mexican restaurant on the corner of Coldwater and Riverside, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, and your little boy was there, and uh, that meant a lot to me to see it. Um, somebody mentioned 2001. I don't believe he was on Cameo, but I'd like to talk to Kier Delay. Anyway, you get the idea. So I'm going to be making this something to exclusively for members to watch all of it and you heard how this thing breaks down now we come to the part of the show where i would much rather have uh glass stuck in my eyes here i have been we have become the financial situation here has become so tight that i can't concentrate anymore i can't i can't function anymore it's the first thing I think about when I wake up, and it's the last thing I think about at night, and I keep thinking that it's going to, it just has to hang on long enough, another month or two, because another month or two, I get a significant hunk of money for finishing the Frank Luke script, and then we'll, you know, be able to, to, to get on with all of this stuff, but, but honestly, for the last six weeks, eight weeks, I, I just can't, I can't, I can't function anymore. It's it's just it just it's so much anxiety for me, and I don't know what the hell I'm going to do about it. I'm not going to ask the members for more help because the members have been paying for stuff and they haven't been getting. In my opinion, they have been they have been they have done they have been loyal above and beyond any reasonable call of duty, and I would rather live in the street than than ask members for more help. But the Stratosphere Lounge crew is different. Home Depot's hiring and Uber. Uh, I think, um, well, I, I gotta tell you, I've given it serious thought, serious thought. Um, so uh, anyway, uh, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put up in, in Twitch and I'm hoping Marusha can post it in uh, YouTube. I'm going to put the link to the uh, donate button uh, for a one-time donation. And if there's anything you could do to help, I really, really could use it right now. Um, 
So uh, there it is in the Twitch stream. And you know, and I need to talk about this because this is a this is a bill problem. And and Marusha, if you could copy that over to um, to YouTube, uh, anything that you could do would be deeply appreciated here. Um, and and now I need it now. Um, if you've gotten anything out of these 375 shows and, and you're not a member, then, you know, uh, this is a one-time donation link for PayPal. And and I feel like this interview show is, is something that I can do one a week. I don't know what else to say about the current situation. I know politically, I know that wading into it makes me ill and I want to do something different. And, and, and if I could get from here to that interview show, without having to do this, I would do it. That's what I've been trying to do for two months is avoid having to go out there and basically say, hey, I'm really, I'm really, I really need this help now financially. And, and the part of me that, that is so mortified by this looks at the part of me that tries to be a rational person or vice versa. The rational part of me looks at this person who's just so absolutely mortified about this and starts slapping him in the face and saying, what's the matter with you, Bill? You get five texts a day from people saying that they are Donald Trump and that Donald Trump needs your help and your money. Donald Trump needs your money, Bill. And I get it five times a day. And I understand that. And I, and I see people I respect and admire enormously. James O'Keefe, who I consider to be a friend, just sent out, uh, somebody said, how do you send money? Um, it's, uh, there's a link right there that Mar Marusha put up. It's in the, if you could just keep popping that up there, that'd be great. I can give you an address as well. Actually, th this would be the way to go. Uh, and James O'Keefe said, I'm being sued by my own company and, and I really need your help. And when I hear it from James O'Keefe, I say to myself, well, you know, I'll send James O'Keefe 10 bucks or something. And I don't know why I have such a hard time with this with me, but I do. It's something about how I was raised. And it's not just, it's not just this kind of Protestant work ethic thing. And trying to understand this, it's connected to something different. Let me just tell you what it's connected to. You can't, okay, you can't pin it. Oh, I don't know how to pin it. Could you just keep posting it, Marusha? I don't want to get off the off the bus here and try to figure out how to do that. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for that super chat. Um, but, but let me tell you what it's related to. Um, Natasha's been learning how to drive. Uh, she saved her money and bought her own car, got her own credit card, did all of it by herself because I, I just couldn't do it. I'm very proud of her for that. But when we were, when we were, um, when we were practicing driving together, I was never worried about her. I was never nervous about an accident. But I will tell you something that made my skin crawl, and and I tried to figure this out. When we were holding up traffic, that made me vibrate. 
she's going slowly because she needs to go slowly and i wanted her to go slowly and and she's not stopped in traffic but there's a line of cars behind us and we are slowing them down and that made me nuts the feed just dropped um that can't be right uh, so we just went offline that's great that's just fantastic all right i'll come back oh it's back okay so why is it i'm trying to figure this out what is it about me that is is just mortified about that on the freeway when when we are holding up traffic and i thought about it and thought about it and thought about it i don't have a lot of recollections of um of my childhood believe it or not i remember things um from the hotel but 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 not a lot of things and i had to kind of puzzle this out so i'm the oldest son of a hotel manager and as far as i can recall um everything i had to do everything exactly precisely correct because the manager's kid cannot be running around making a jackass of himself it just can't be done it just it's just not in the cards bill you got to be you got to do everything the right way so when when i got back from i don't know my second first or second semester in um uh in that school in bermuda my dad said you're gonna have to do better than this okay so i did i came first in my class every time four times a year from then until we left bermuda and i know this has got to have something to do with it but i can't i don't know why this is so unbelievably emotionally painful for me but it is it is it just i don't know i don't know we've cut uh, expenses here to the bone um we've had to put uh uh, virtue signal on hiatus for a little while and starting in january when things really started to you know i just realized this is just this is just not bringing in as much money as we're spending um back in january i just took over all of the editing and posting because i can work for free uh, and if you've ever had a, a business and signed the front of the check you also know the pressure there that when you have people depending on you and and i've got and i've got family members that are depending on me too that are in you know that that need up and and i have to give it to them because they're family and, I, and that's what i want to do so i've just let this thing go and go and go and some days we'll have a, a good deposit um from the existing members and and then i get a couple days when i can breathe again and then we'll go a couple days when we don't and then we just get hit with this expense or that expense and 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 it's gotten to the point where i can't i can't function anymore i just i come into work 
and I sit here and I just stare at the walls. It's it's really it's it's bad enough so that I'm actually going through with this because I I just don't I just don't have any choice anymore. Uh, so if you are able to um, to make a donation, now would be the time. I'd be very very grateful. Um, one way or another, um, we will be able to get past this. Uh, and it's not like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I'm just having so much anxiety about this that I'm having a real hard time writing this script for the hi-fi figures that I'm contracted for when I deliver it. So I was just trying to tough it out till I got to that, and I just realized, no, it's not going to make it, man. You're just not going to make it. Um, so, uh, you know, there you go. Uh, anyway, I'm going to, um, I'm going to just probably just leave it at that. So I feel like this new content is, is really interesting and fun and I'm looking forward to it. And, um, and I had hoped that I could get there from here without having to go through this, but I can't. So there you go. Uh, and for the super chats and everything else, thank you very much. I'm very, very grateful for all of this. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, I'm looking forward to getting these uh, new shows. And, and I think the thing to do is to do three of them, probably, um, so that it doesn't look like this is just one. I'd like it to look like, no, we, we can do these things. We can do these things one a week. And then, um, oh, the YouTube stream died. That's just great. That's just great. So that means I'm probably going to, means I'm going to have to do this again. Okay, that's what we have to do. That's what we'll do. And thank you to all of you because I see this service at PayPal thing dinging along. Um, anyway, I'm very grateful. Uh, so I think probably what I'll do is take a couple quick questions and then uh, quick questions being another hour or so. And then we will, uh, this is just... Well, you want to talk about the just the perfect time for this thing just to freeze up. But I'll do a couple questions because um, I like doing questions. And then we'll see. And again, thank you all for your support and, and your emotional support and all the rest of it. It's just some, I don't know, put in my head early and deep that this is just not what you do. And uh, so there you go. But thank you. Um, okay, so uh, let's see if we can get a couple questions done here real quick. I'm very excited about this show idea. I'm looking forward to getting some answers back on this. And then I think what we'll probably do is once we get the ball rolling and established, then I think we'll just put it up to a vote. Who do we want to talk to next? Here's a list of potential names. And, and you know, this is what they cost. And, and, you know, we'll do that. But anyway, there you go. Uh, Come on. Uh, 
again, thank you all very much. Um, all right, here we go. And somebody mentioned this, by the way. I saw this in the in the comment section. It's it's pretty obvious that um, that I can do this just talking stuff for till the cows come home. Um, is this? It's like a, a, a like a daily morning or a daily podcast. That, the Stratosphere Lounge thing on a daily basis, that's not hard for me to do. Uh, writing is is real hard for me to do. But whatever um, we can do to, you know, increase the value of this right now, maybe uh, I'd like to hear some feedback on that too because um, maybe I'll do a special one during the week. In fact, I probably will. I might even do that tomorrow and just talk about this and stuff because uh, – there's a lot of stuff that needs to get done. A lot of stuff I want to do. A lot of stuff you guys want to do, and um, and I need to and I need to get it done. So I just can't do it by myself. That's all there is to it. All right, here we go. Um, thank you again for all of the kindness and and generosity. Uh, from Ian Noland. I haven't had a chance to read any more of the fourth turning, but here we go. Uh, Bill, now that we're on the same page regarding the fourth turning, it's interesting to think about what is different this cycle that can disrupt or make it look different than previous cycles. I can think of a few things. Me too. This is interesting to me too. Nuclear weapons seem to have a significant dampening effect on the prospect of all-out great power warfare. Couldn't agree more. The theory is, is that these great wars and traumas burn out all of the uh, built-up dried brush and reset the cycle. And I agree. I, I, nuclear war would be the ultimate uh, crisis. I just find, that given how, given how constantly, given how people were ordered on several several occasions in the Soviet Union to start a nuclear war based on the fact they thought they were being attacked and they didn't do it, I find it unlikely in any situation now. Certainly after that kind of pressure where guys are in submarines, you know, where they think they're being depth charged by U.S. destroyers and they still don't push the button. I find that to be an enormous comfort. Um, his next point is, uh, most of the recent cycles have been about better consolidation and centralization for industrialization, but the major technological shift in the past several seasons has been the massive decentralizing power of computer networking. Yes, and I'm beginning to wonder, Ian, if COVID um, isn't... Uh, part of this crisis cycle because it's on time and and certainly the COVID-19 reaction increased the decentralization. Lots of people had to start working from home and then once they realized they could work from home, both the employers and the employees said, we like this working from home. Employees like working from home because they're home and employers like having them work from home because they don't have to pay for offices or, or any of that stuff anymore. So, yeah. And then finally, soft totalitarianism, China's social credit stuff was never really possible without computation. Now it is. Yes, so now you no longer have to face guys with machine guns. You just face guys with, um, uh, with the ability to turn your passport from green to red. And the problem with that is, since it's a 
softer form of totalitarianism, it doesn't provoke that kind of armed response, we've got nothing to lose, they're murdering us kind of thing. That's why it's alarming. Um, can you think of any other major variables? What are the fundamental forces at work right-minded people need to focus on? I think the single greatest variable is one of the things I've been talking about from the very beginning of me doing this, and that's the advent of the internet, which has caused enormous damage because of um, social media, but which allows us to have this conversation right now. This is the first time that regular people have been able to talk to other regular people in large numbers and circumvent the priesthood of uh, the decaying aristocracy. Um, and I think that one strength outweighs all of the weaknesses that the internet brings with it. Uh, so the, the more I see things coming apart, the more I realize it's not coming apart for everybody. It's not coming apart for you or me in terms of what we think about the country. We're not suddenly becoming drug addicts and we haven't lost our, our virtue or our honesty or anything. More and more of the world out there seems to be doing that. But it's not contagious, but it is prevalent and dangerous. It's more like an, it's more like an, like an, like a predator, really. It's not like you can catch it. It's almost like it can catch you. Um, but I'm saying that to cheer people up. It's this, this coming reshuffle is largely, I think, look, everybody's going to get a haircut, but I, I don't think we're going to be in anything like the kind of trouble that the people who live in in the big cities are going to be in, I think they're going to be in real big trouble. That's what I, and and the migrations and all the rest of that displacement. So when you ask, um, what do we need to work on? We need to um, start establishing some networks and continuing with our networks, and mostly we need to keep our chin up, which is why I'm excited about this new idea. Right? Despair is our greatest enemy, and that's why. Uh, Roosevelt said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, and, and, and Churchill, they all realized that the, the single greatest threat is losing your morale, and um, and we just have to encourage each other in that regard. Yeah, things are terrible. When I sent out this email uh, to these guys, I said, I'd like this show to be something that basically says, yes, things are, are getting bad out there, and they may get worse, but when they're over, we'll be better people, and it'll be a better country than it was when all this stuff started. So keep your eye on that on that star and you know sail by that and then um, we'll get through this and I think we'll get through this a lot easier than every other cycle in history um, so that hopefully that helps uh, John I'm sorry Joe Roth uh, Trump has been indicted for a fourth time only a fourth time why not 400 times for challenging Georgia's election results this time in Atlanta Wildfires ravage across Maui, and now the state of Hawaii plans to buy up all the destroyed land and prohibiting private sale and ownership of this property. I had not heard this, but color me unsurprised. An unknown farm boy named Oliver Anthony releases a new song called Richmond North of Richmond. We did a segment on that, which I need to post tonight. A song with him just singing with his guitar, it's now the most popular song in America, reaching number one on the charts. If you haven't heard it, listen to it. It's today's anthem for the forgotten people of America. You can hear the despair and hopelessness in his voice and his lyrics. That's uh, the right angle for tomorrow. So what do, we, what do these three things have in common and how do you tie them all together? Um, this is the elite moving through 
nonviolent means to control and own everything. Uh, the Hawaii thing is a shocking, but great example. There's no way that they could forcefully commandeer the people's private property because they're gutless cowards, and even in Hawaii, their people are armed. So they use an opportunity like this, a tragedy like this, a catastrophe like this, instead of doing what government should do, which is helping to rebuild people's private property and helping get the roads back into shape and all the rest of it. That's what I meant by helping to rebuild. Uh, they're going to use this catastrophe to basically ratchet up some more control. Used to have a bunch of private houses here. Oh, what a terrible tragedy. They've all burned to the ground. Well, guess what? No more private houses here. Now public transit, public housing, and that we can control. So they're going to keep doing things like that. Um, I don't know why these idiots don't see this. I really don't. But um, the uh, the more you indict Trump, the more frequently you indict Trump, the less impressive it is, the, the, the less monumental it is. This idea of, oh, well, well, he's been indicted four times now. Now there's 700 charges against him. I say, fine, invite, go ahead and indict him. Indict him a hundred times, indict him a thousand times. The more you indict him, the more I want to vote for him. But putting that aside, that's, that's just my gut reaction. From a purely rational point of view, you would think that they would realize that if they indict him every day, it's going to be old news pretty quick. And the more indictments that come, the less serious it looks. They're terrified of him. And they're terrified of him because they know that if the, if the half of the country that, that doesn't want to be, you know, told what to do, gets up on our hind legs and elects Donald Trump again, this time, it will be their butts on the line. This time, it's not just a question of people being fired. People are going to jail, and many of them are going to go to jail for a long time. So they're going to do everything they can to stop him, and they don't understand. They'll never understand because of their visceral hatred for him. They'll never understand that his support comes from indicting him. If, if Donald Trump weren't taking the kind of heat that he's taking he'd have essentially no power at all, really. Uh, when he said, they're not coming after me, they're coming after you, I'm just getting in their way. I thought that was the most brilliant thing that he said. I thought it was absolutely brilliantly spot on. And he's right, he's right. So go ahead and indict him, Georgia. Go ahead, just indict him everywhere. In, just keep indicting him because when there's 2,000 indictments that suddenly appear against a guy that they had nothing on for years and years and years, they had nothing on him when he was president, had nothing on him for the past three years, now all of a sudden we're getting close to election season, now all of a sudden we're finding all these charges, go ahead, indict him to the heavens. All they're doing is making it crystal clear that they are criminalizing political opposition in this country and this is the, this is the end of America, but 
Republicans are plus three now. We were, was Democrats plus six or plus seven? I think during the midterms, something like that. So the more they do this, the more people who either haven't been paying attention or people who just don't like Donald Trump realize, okay, I don't like this guy, but I like the idea of the government criminalizing opposition even less. These would be honest liberals, actual liberals who believe in things like free speech and so on. Um, that, uh, that kind of thing, they'll never understand. They keep thinking that if they, if they somehow can prove to Trump supporters that he's a crass, loudmouth, vulgar guy who's thin-skinned about a lot of things, that suddenly we'll stop voting for him. But we all took that as red before, before the guy even threw his incredibly cool red hat in the ring. Yeah, we understand Donald Trump's weaknesses and his, and his um, character flaws. And we don't particularly like him. I'm speaking for myself here, but I think most of us on some level understand that Donald Trump could, I almost said Donald Trump could be a better man, but he can't be. He's the man who he is. That's why he's there. Uh, and, and I'll take all of his faults, all of them, because I perceive that he is not part of this cabal. And I know he's not part of this cabal because the cabal is trying to destroy him. So if the oligarchs and the intellectuals and the and the bureaucrats and the unelected officials and the staff and the federal agencies and all of those people are going after Donald Trump, then I'm voting for him because because they're the ones that are trying to control our lives. They're determined to control our lives and, and he's in their way. So he's my guy come thick or thin. And, 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 and I'll go further. I don't think there's anything to these um, indictments, but I'm at the point now where I don't care anymore. Uh, he could be guilty of all of them. In normal circumstances, when my government was not at war with me, I would say, no, I like a president who obeys the law. But I've brought this point up on right angle several times. The justice system is supposed to function like this. Oh, look, there's some evidence that somebody has committed a crime. What we're seeing now is go out there and search for a crime that you can manipulate the evidence for. Um, I, I just think that this is, this is, you don't, I don't want to live in a country because everybody, everybody, everybody has committed a felony in this country. That's a, that's a shocking thing to realize. But I, I've heard an analysis of that, given all the laws that are on the books and all the regulations and all the things you don't know about. If somebody really, really, really dug, they could put you in jail for something that's like actually on the statutes. But that's not how America's supposed to work. It's not like, I don't like this guy. Let's go digging through his garbage and see if he's done anything wrong. The way it's supposed to work is say, look, this guy did something wrong. Let's see if we can find some evidence for this. Right. And that is tyranny. It's soft, cowardly tyranny. And, um, and they're soft, cowardly people, so that's the kind they're using. 
and so, okay, if that's if that's the way they want to play the game, then let's just reduce it to the brass tacks of the dynamic. Their strategy is if we can convict or if we can indict Donald Trump enough, it will make people realize that he's a crook and they won't vote for him. But when you understand the nature of, of these things and how they work and the whole dossier and Hillary Clinton and the you know million dollars of Russian collusion, all of that of this stuff, you begin to realize it's like, I'm going with the lesser of two evils now. I'd rather have a guy who's broken a lot of laws. I'm not saying he did. I'm just saying, here's my choice. I'd rather have a businessman who's, who's, who's played around the margins and, and committed technical violations of the law, prosecutable violations of the law. I'd much rather have that than people that are trying to use the legal system and weaponizing the government against the American people. I believe Donald Trump's for the American people. I don't see any reason why he would be doing this otherwise. He's been president. He doesn't need the money. And and so that, if you'll pardon the expression, trumps everything else. So that's why that's why they're doing it, and that's why um, and that's why they're after him. And 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 of all the data out there, how does Trump compare with Biden and all the rest of it? What about the what about the election fraud? What about all this other stuff? All of this stuff is out there. It's all out there. It's important and it's depressing. But Republicans plus three, three percent more people identify as Republican than Democrats. I've never heard that before ever. Democrats win elections because they're plus 12, they're plus eight. And most of these elections are down to two or three percent difference. If, if Republicans are plus three and if that number keeps going up as this thing continues, then they are then they're going to fail. And I and I really want them to fail. And as we've said before on the show many times, is California's voting system corrupt? Yes. Is New York corrupt? Yes. I think I think many of these states have extraordinarily corrupt electoral systems. And the only way to deal with that is to understand that those states are probably gone anyway. You gotta fight for places like Pennsylvania and things like that. That's where that's where you really have to come out where it's not a one party state and hasn't been for forever. So you know, there you go. Um, but uh, but if if we can pull this off, we will have a chance to really reset this cycle without catastrophe. If we can pull this off in 2024, and by pull it off, I mean the House, the Senate, and the presidency. Donald Trump said in 2016 he's going to drain the swamp. I think he had no idea how big the swamp was or how deep it was. I think that the swamp drained, drained him, frankly. But I don't believe he thinks that anymore. I don't think that anymore. And it wasn't Trump's presidency that did it. It was a combination of the irregularities with the, um, the balloting in 2020, followed by uh, immediately by, within three months, by the COVID thing. Wait a minute. Did I get that backwards? The shutdowns? I don't remember. But COVID and, and the 2020 election 
broke my trust in in the institutions of this country. Not permanently. The institutions, as written, are profoundly just and well-balanced, but they've been utterly corrupted, so we need to dig this thing out from underneath the mud and start restoring it to its former glory. That's um, that's what we need to do, and, and I think that's what we probably will do. But the one thing we can't do is give up, and that's that's within our power. Um, let me see here. Uh, okay. And one, two, three, four. I think we can get them all. Um, Road Road Rider. Uh, Sir William Woodle, may I call you Bill? You absolutely can call me Bill um, Road. It'd be a pleasure. I learned about the Cloward Piven strategy from you, either in a trifecta or an afterburner. The question is, are we living in the Cloward Piven strategy right now? For those of you not aware of it, Cloward Piven strategy is a theory produced by um, Alinskyites, which are essentially the Frankfurt School School of Marxists, that basically says that the way that you eliminate independent free citizens is by having the situation is is by creating the circumstances where society collapses and there is no other place to go but the government as a matter of fact it's a perfect analogy for the hawaii fires no one's going to go in there and bulldoze private property for people but if the thing burns down then this thing will move in then and then that'll be the that'll be the new norm that'll be the new property owner uh, he goes on to say, every day five things are discovered and one alone would have been devastating 30 years ago, but now 10 to 20 new events a week are thrown at us. A secret lab in the middle of the, of the farmland north of Fresno, California is discovered with mice, vials of toxins, and COVID. And then it's discovered and then like magic, a day later falls off the radar. It's out of the news cycle to be memory hold, only to be replaced by the next new thing. The border, grooming, trans, Ukraine, digital currency, Bidenomics, Bidenomics, Trump, 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 Disney, Snow Whiteish, Woke, Dylan Soros, DA, DEI, ESG, FBI, CIA, RFK, and hidden Chinese affiliated biolabs in Fresno? Question mark. Yes. So, what's my response to that? You probably wonder. Uh, well, my response to that is okay. Okay. These people can't do anything. They can't build anything, and they can't make anything. That's why they depend on legislation and taxation. That they, they can't compete because they're incompetent, because they're weak and they're stupid. But they are venal, and they are cunning. And most importantly, most importantly, they are absolutely without any principles whatsoever. They're losers. And this is how losers gain power. They gain power behind the scenes, in the dark, in the basement, by corrupting things that work. And the ultimate way that they win power, and really the only way they can win power, is if they can convince the winners that the game is over, that it's not worth playing anymore, that there's no point in, in, in going on, and so on. I'm coming to this conclusion more and more every day, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to 
talk about this interview show. They're trying to make us crazy, and they're trying to get us to give up. And they're and, and not just give up, they're trying to get us to start eating ourselves the way that they eat themselves. They're starting, they're, they're, they're just trying to make us, well, they're provoking us. That's the only word for it. They're just poking us with a stick, waiting for us to do something that they can use to turn the car around. Um, and to some degree, it's working, which is why with every passing day, especially lately, like within the last couple weeks, uh, road, if I can call you road, you list appropriately enough this this paragraph of doom, which is what I have to wade into every day, and you as well. Let's just go over it again. The border grooming trans Ukraine digital currency, digital currency Bidenomics, Trump, 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 Disney, Snow Whiteish, woke Dylan Soros, DAs, DEI, ESG, FBI, CIA, RFK, and hidden Chinese affiliated biolabs in Fresno. And I think the only answer to that is so what? Okay, so what? Not that it doesn't matter, not that it's not important, but it's like, okay, this is what happens when the incompetent weenies get the levers of power. And they're all something to worry about. They're all important. They're all disturbing. But I'm at the point now where I just say, okay, so you have those two. You also have information control. You have control of the media. You have control of mythology. You have the control of the stories. You got control of all of these things. And now you're down three. The more power you get, the more unpopular you become. And and if things were going the other way, I'd be a lot more depressed, but I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm at the point now where I just say, all of this is true. All of this is important. All of this is heartbreaking, but I'm not going to let it break my heart. I'm not going to. I'm just not. I'm, I'm not going to let it fill me with despair. I'm going to just focus my anger and try and turn that heat into useful work. And by useful work, I mean not only winning elections, but reminding people that this idea that it's all over is is the goal. That's the ultimate objective. What do they really want? Oh, they want control of the money system. Oh, they want control of the political system. They want control of information. These are not what they want. This is what they use to get what they want. What they want is they want to win, and they cannot win unless we surrender. And that's what the end goal is, is it is designed to get us to surrender. Not to walk over to them and say, I give up, I'm a liberal, but just walk away from the fight. Just leave the battlefield. That's what, they, that's what they're trying to do to us, is to get us to surrender. And, and so when I see this list of, of, of atrocities and outrages, then I just simply say, okay, all right, yes, true. So what? So what? We're still here. We're still here. We're going to still be here. If you think that having an actress talking down Snow White is going to cause us to abandon this country, you got another thing coming. Uh, even if we hear this a thousand times from 10,000 different angles, you got another thing coming. All of the things that they are backing are self-destructive for them. They cannot get away from this. That's why they're. That's why they're. They're losers. That's why they have to manipulate things because nobody wants to buy what they're selling. 
That's why they're indicting Donald Trump. They're indicting Donald Trump because they're afraid that if they don't do that and control everything he says on Twitter and so on, then people will vote for him. Nobody wants what they are selling. So they just try to get us to walk away from the fight. It's either unwinnable or it's too much trouble or things have gone too far. Look at all the losses. All of this is true. But no, we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. We're not going to lose this country to... We, we didn't lose this country to guys with guns and battleships and airplanes, and we're sure as shit not going to lose it to guys with, 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 with smartphones and, and, um, and, uh, and minor office holders. Isn't that one of the things that Shakespeare wrote about in Hamlet's soliloquy as being one of the things that make you want to just kill yourself? Hang on. Because that's a pretty impressive list that old Will put together there. Um, the whole thing is that whole that whole Hamlet soliloquy is about should I kill myself? Is it is it worth is it worth the fight? Is it? Uh, it's just so much easier to kill yourself. Uh, Yeah, so he's talking about, well, I'll just read it. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, and I'll put in a little belittle narration here to add to Shakespeare, because God knows he needs it. Uh, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune is what we're experiencing right now. That list you just listed that was so perfectly constructed, those are the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Or do we take up arms against a sea of trouble and by opposing end them? To die to sleep no more, to sleep, to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that the flesh is heir to. This is why Shakespeare is Shakespeare, folks. Right now, we are experiencing the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that the flesh is heir to. In other words, living on earth is, is not easy. It's depressing sometimes. It's scary. It's demoralizing. It it's often feels like it's just not worth the trouble. So he says, would it be nice just to go to sleep? Oh, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. Yes, it'd be nice to be able to sleep through this whole thing. It'd be great if we could just Go to sleep and wake up and have the problem be gone. In fact, just go to sleep and not wake up, period. Problem solved. That's the easy way to go. And then he says, to sleep perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil? He's basically saying, yes, but is giving up worse. Because while it may seem like you're just going to take a rest in the, in, in the middle of the blizzard, just lie down for a couple minutes and just fade away, Hamlet's dilemma is he's more he doesn't know whether killing himself will be worse for him than not killing himself. But he he lists the things that make you want to kill yourself, and that's what reminded me of this, because I saw your list of things and I thought, God, you know, here are the things that he, he listed. This is what makes you want to kill yourself. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? In other words, getting older. The oppressor's wrong, in other words, charging people of things that they didn't do. The proud man's contumely, contumely. I don't remember what contumely is, so I'm about that. I guess it's pride and strutting. The pangs of despised love. 
The laws delay. The laws delay. Where's the justice? Where's Hillary Clinton? Why is Hillary Clinton not in jail? The laws delay is enough to make you go nuts. The insulin of off, insolence of office, he says, the insolence of it, the insolence of somebody like Joe Biden telling us how we should live and, 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 and lecturing us on how to spend money and, and, and calling us domestic terrorists and all the rest of it. The insolence, the insolence of it. And the spurns that the patient merit of the unworthy take. When he himself might make his quietus make with a bare botkin. So why would you put up with all of these things? Why put up with them? Well, because we don't know what's what's coming. We don't know what's going to happen in the undiscovered country. But he lists in this soliloquy. He lists the symptoms, the symptoms of the demoralization that's caused by the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy makes. These are the things that drive people crazy. What are the symptoms? If you're not going to kill yourself, how can you tell? Well. He says it's a fear of the consequences of that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills, in other words, makes us want to live with them, than to fly to others that we know not of. In other words, yes, it's bad here, but if we, if we surrender and give up, is it going to be worse? Somewhere else. Here's where it is. Thus conscience doth make cowards of us all. Conscience doth make cowards of us all. We know what we have to do. We know what the right thing to do is. And we find a way to justify not doing it. Conscience doth make cowards of us all. And thus the native hue of resolution, that blight, bright, blood red determination, that, that, that native hue of resolution, that determination to act, and thus the native hue of resolution is sickly overed with the pale cast of thought. The blood-red desire is watered down and pinkened by the pale cast of thought. We think about things we don't act. We think about things we talk ourselves out of. But we think about things we procrastinate. It's sickly overed. He's saying that action, that direct action, in the case of Hamlet, killing the man who murdered his father, but in the case of, of of us, it's, it's, it's essentially overthrowing the people that have overthrown this country. Why don't we do it? Well, because conscious doth make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied over. It's a palsy. It's a disease. This, this constant thinking about things, this constant analyzing, this constant procrastinating, this constant rationalizing, and enterprises of great pith and moment, things like going to the moon, with this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Lose the name of action. It's no longer about going to the moon. We're now talking about going to the moon. What he's saying here is so timeless and so profound that he's basically, basically caught the human condition.
We should fight them. Yes, we should fight them. So let's go fight them. Uh, let's not, not get ahead of ourselves here, you know. And, and, and Hamlet ends up becoming the victim of his own sickly pails of thought. He, he becomes incapacitated. He, he becomes incapacitated. He's listed the things that make life miserable, the insolence of office, the law's delay, all things that people who have a sense of right and wrong and justice. Hamlet's got a sense of right and wrong and justice. His father was murdered. He knows it. He's got proof. So what's he going to do about it? Well, he needs to take revenge. He needs to kill the person who killed his father. He needs to kill his uncle, King. That's what he has to do. Why doesn't he do it? Because he's a coward. Because he... It's not even that he's a coward. It's because he cannot decide. He cannot take action. That's what makes Hamlet Hamlet. He cannot make a decision. No matter which option, he's got two. Live with the fact that the guy who murdered your father is now going to bed with your mom and is the king of the, of the realm and he's wearing your dad's crown and he got away with murder, not just murder, got away with the murder of your father and he's in bed with your mom. Live with that or put a knife in him. That's kind of what we're dealing with right now, isn't it? Living with this insult to this country and everything it stands for, the FBI calling American patriots domestic terrorists because we had questions about the vaccine or questions about the voting thing, this kind of insolence, stick a knife in them or live with it. And the thing about Hamlet is Shakespeare doesn't give you an answer because Hamlet doesn't make a decision. He doesn't do either of those things. And so, and so, goodness fails because he walks away. He can't decide. He can't decide. So, um, that's why a classical education is so important because these are timeless things. If, if the progressives were right and history is being rewritten on a daily basis and that everything new has nothing to do with things that have come before, that human beings are completely different and new, that we're going to be the first generation to not have any war, not have any injustice, we're going to be the first generation, all of this stuff that every generation believes, okay, okay. But it's not true. And it's not true because a guy 400 years ago just told me what the problem is. And he did it perfectly. What are you going to do about it? Bill, you know, what are you going to do? And in this case, sticking a knife in it may come to the point where you actually do have to start thinking about sticking knives and things. But right now, sticking a knife in it, fighting back, suffering the slings of arrows of outrageous fortune, and turning back to fight, that consists of things like doing this show and and keeping keeping people optimistic and not letting them fall into despair and and getting out there to vote and win elections and 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 making videos and comments that make people realize no you're not crazy they just want you to think you're crazy and they're very good at this we're being gaslit and and when when you're being gaslit and everybody's telling you that something you know is is 
is false is true, you start to believe them until somebody else, this is the, the plot of gaslighting. Somebody else says, no, I saw it too. I saw the gaslights dim. You did? Yes, I, of course I saw it. So I'm not crazy. No, you're not crazy at all. No. Okay. The remnant, Road Rider says. Yes, that's the word. The remnant. The remnant. The remnant. Most important, I think I'll probably wrap with this. The most important essay I ever read in terms of my attitude and, um, and perseverance was an it's been a long time now. It's been so long I've forgotten the guy's name. He was a, a writer in the early 1900s, kind of starch collar, kind of tie kind of guy, you know, very strict sort of academician. Uh, and his name will come back to me. Hopefully somebody can get it for me here. Um, he wrote a story called um, uh, Somebody's Job. What was it? Um, I forget the name of the, of the prophet now. Isaiah? Maybe? Isaiah's job? I'm, I'm ashamed to say that I've forgotten uh, the name of it. I need to read it again. But basically what he's saying is God comes to, I think it was a virtually positive Isaiah, God comes to Isaiah and says, I need you to go to this town and preach, uh, preach the word of God. Yes, Lord. You know, God shows up at your door and says, I want you to do something. You have my undivided attention. Lord, you are, you are top of the ticket. What can I do for you? I need you to go over here and I need you to do this thing for me. Yes, sir. Um, but before you go, just a little uh, little kicker here. No one's going to listen to you. No one's going to listen to you. Well, with all due respect, Lord, uh, if nobody's going to listen to me, then then why am I going? And and the answer is that while no one will appear to listen to you, there is a group that has always existed it's not the illuminati it's not it's not masons it's not something you join it's not something you have it's something you are it is an element of of who you are that is a carrier of this flame that refuses to give it up albert it's not hawk it's something like that uh, knock albert knock maybe I think it's three names, something, something, knock, I think. Yeah. But basically what God is saying is the people who will be ignoring you will be the ones that are visible, but people will hear you. And they will use what you tell them. And they may not even remember that they heard it from you. It may come to them as an idea out of their own head 20, 30 years from now. But this group, this remnant, is the indestructible core of of belief. It's the indestructible core of goodness that cannot be destroyed. It can only be surrendered. And your job is to go out there and speak to the remnant. It doesn't matter whether or not the masses of people hear you. They're going to go wherever the last person speaking to them wants to take them. But this group is very small, but it's the only thing that really, really matters. It's the only thing that matters because this is where these are the people that will keep the seed of, of the next cycle. They're the ones that will protect everything that's worth protecting. 
and the entire world can go to hell. So long as the remnant survives, it doesn't matter. And that's who we are. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. Albert J. Nock, I say his job. That's why we're here. That's our job. Our job is not to stop this because we can't stop it. Our job is to preserve. And I tried to stop it for 20 years. It, it, there's no stopping it. That doesn't mean the world's going to end for us. It doesn't mean everything's going to burn. It doesn't mean it's going to be Stalingrad. It just means that this BS is coming to an end and it's going to be messy. But we'll get through this and we will um, be better on the other side. And the only actual way we can be defeated is if we surrender. And once you realize that, then everything else becomes tolerable. Tolerable. Yes, Marusha, I will do that. Thank you very much. I will do that right now. Yeah, I think this will do it. Well, I'm sorry we lost the YouTube stream right when we did, but um, I'm going to go ahead and... Um, I think I've I think I've got a couple of stratosphere launches that need to be posted. I'm going to post this one out of order. I think I just get this up here right away, because um, uh, I think this is uh, it's real important. It's important to me. I think it's a good idea, and I think um, based on the reaction we saw live, it's um, it's uh, something that's going to work. So I'm looking forward to hearing back from some of the people I've emailed and. And some of them will say yes, and some of them will say no, and that's okay too. But um, I think once we get this thing going, it'll it'll be um, something I think that that is easily done weekly, and finally something that will be mostly behind the paywall, so that uh, so that you know you don't have people lined up to pay for things that somebody standing right next to them is getting for free anyway. Um, Okay. Uh, like as the wave said, those are comforting and courageous words. Um, thank you. They are. They're not mine. And those words from you are comforting and courageous for me as well, too. Um, they can't stop us. They can't touch us. They can make life miserable. They can, they can cause us pain, but they can't. They can't beat us. They know it. They know they can't beat us. All they can do is have us surrender and walk away. And no, not doing it. You're not doing it either. Okay, well, thank you once again uh, for listening. As always, thank you for the support, emotional support, as always, and especially thank you for the financial support that started tickling in here. And um, and we're doing just the very best that we can here. And uh, and I'm very, very grateful for, for all the help and assistance. And, um, and if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, uh, it's, it's going to still be there when it's on YouTube. So um, uh, we'll see you Monday night, and I might do an extra show on this. Uh, let me let me see how uh, some of these emails come back. Um, if it turns out that um, we get, uh, you know, a certain commitment from a certain couple people, might do a special show just on this and maybe make that appeal one more time. Um, okay. Uh, thank you for that, Marusha. That's very kind. Um, and uh, 
yeah, that'll do it. Um, so we'll see you uh, Monday night um, back on the other track, which I love, which makes me happy and makes me, and it's fun. Uh, and I think this would be fun too, and and new and 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 thank you for giving me a chance to talk about this because this uh, experience of the last uh, two and a half hours has really clarified for me personally what are what the real uh, challenge is, what the real danger is, and um, so yeah, thank you for that as well. Okay, Hail Vectron, uh, and. Um, and we'll see you guys on uh, Monday night. And thanks again for um, for uh, for the support. And don't let the bastards get you down. <laughs>